Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Brothers F Bookcast. Um, I'm Diego, and today I'm joined by my hermanos, Andres and Francisco. ¿Cómo están? Muy bien, gracias. Good to be here. I mean, we're, we're covering uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, not uh, not, uh, not, Cien, not Cien Años de Soledad, or <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know. I just uh, I'm I'm very very excited for this episode. I think this is uh, has potential to be one of our best yeah. yet. Oh really? I really wow. do. Wow. I I just think this is extremely podcastable material. Um, and this book, you know, it's interesting. We're doing one flew over the cuckoo's nest, and um, I originally read this in quotes read because. Uh, Mr. Kirby, in his infinite wisdom, assigned this at the height of AP exams uh, my junior year. So um, I may or may not have read it. Um, yeah, but, I mean, at that point, you're just not reading it at all. Yeah, more or less along those lines. But uh, I remember the discussions being pretty fruitful and the spark notes being pretty interesting. And so um, when this is another one of those hot, uh, apartment lobby books that, you know, someone was moving out and I picked it up. And I uh, decided I'd give it another go. And, and boy, am I glad I did. I thought this was, um, I, thought, I thought it was fantastic. I absolutely loved it. And um, I, uh, I mean, I just think you can go into so many levels with this book. It's, it's almost hard to start, you know. But I'm, I'm interested to see if, uh, if you guys enjoyed it as much as I did. I super enjoyed it. Um, it had been, I had read it before, but it had been many, many years and it's funny, there were a few lines here that, that stuck with me. Um, but for the most part, I totally forgot what the story was about or uh, any, any specifics. And I, I really enjoyed reading it. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And um, I don't know. I just think Ken Kesey does such a good job of, like, placing you at the scene. Um, because, I don't know, he, I did do research on him. And, uh, you know, he did used to work in the VA hospital. Um, which was, uh, so I guess that kind of gave him, you know, probably some background as to how, you know, mental institutions dash, you know, institutionalized people would have been treated back then. But, um, you know, I just thought it was fantastic. He did such a good job of, you know, it's narrated through the lens of, you know, Chief Bromden. And so the narration is like, you can picture the way Bromden speaks because he narrates it in that way, like with you know, contractions, very informal English, like I was gonna, I wanna. Um, but then, you know, when he switches from character to character, like when it's uh, Harding's turn to to talk, you know, he does such a good job of like making Harding seem like such a nerd using like, you know, <laughs> amazing, amazing English. Um, yeah, and we same with the, the characters where later on the Harding super annoyed me. Like every time he opened his <laughs> mouth in the book, it just, it just, I could not, it just pissed me off, honestly. <laughs> But I think that's what's cool about the book, though, because he was able to do that, right? Like, and he's able to switch from, you know, writing in like extremely informal, uh, you know, English to 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 then writing, you know, through the perspective of Harding or Nurse Ratchet to switching to, uh, you know, McMurphy to switching to, you know, any other of the uh, of the characters of which there are many in this book. So I, I thought that was fantastic. And I, I really enjoyed that about, you know, at the, at the most sur- superficial, at the most surface level, you know, off the bat, that was something I really, really enjoyed. Yeah. And 
it's funny. I think I think he definitely thought a lot about that. But there were also little things I I I looked up the Wikipedia page as I often do for these things that we read just to get some context. Um, and it was interesting that the movie that came out, which was a very famous movie, I think, featuring Jack Nicholson, is that his name? Whatever. Yeah, I think uh, I think I think it was him. Yeah, Jack Nicholson. Yeah. Jack Nicholson. I don't I don't know. I think one of them's a golfer. One of them's an actor. <laughs> well, the actor of the two, who always plays sort of deranged and interesting people, um, he got cast, and apparently they they changed the framing from away from from Chief Brunton, who's the main character in the book, and this really irritated the author. Apparently, he kicked up a huge fuss because for him, the framing as through the lens of Chief Brandon was very important. And it's a very interesting framing because he has all this history growing up as a Native American, half Native American, half uh, uh, white in the sort of, it's Oregon, right? In the Oregon area on the Columbia River, um, sort of being betrayed by, by white people from the city growing up. Um, and his whole life, even though he's absolutely massive, he's like six foot seven or something, people just overlooked him. Uh, and the book for, I think, maybe half the book or something, everyone thinks he's deaf and dumb. Like, he can't hear, can't speak. And that ends up being a pretty useful plot device in many parts because he gets privileged access to back rooms and secret conversations that otherwise people never would have let him hear. So in that way, the author, Ken Kessie, sort of uses him to, to be a, an omniscient narrator of some kind. Yeah, and you know what? I'm gonna have to completely agree with Ken Kesey. You know, I I uh, I spent four bucks to watch the movie after this, um, and I I thought exactly that uh, without having you know read this to believe, uh, having read his reaction to it um, ahead of time. You know, I thought they just didn't do the chief justice. You know, the the, the chief Bromden is, I would say, you know, you could argue McMurphy's the main character, but it's told through the lens of Chief Bromden the whole book. He's the narrator. Yeah, honestly, like for me, Chief Brumden is the highlight of the book. I loved him. I thought yeah. he was a beautiful character and just very interesting to dig into. Um, and it for me, it kind of made the book that this was all through his lens. And you know, uh, again, well, I guess we'll go into the details later. But it's all about how this one man who's not crazy, uh, Randall Patrick McMurphy, uh, enters an insane asylum and completely reinvigorates and liberates all the sort of downtrodden men who live with him. And having the story told through the lens of one of these men who's been stomped on by society and having him rise up and be reborn in some sense is a great way of framing the story. I mean, it, it makes it that much more interesting. Uh, yeah, I, I, I completely agree with that. And it's interesting because I read this in Mr. Kirby's class, but I read it in a class called uh, Hero, Heroes in Literature, I think. And, um, well, read it in quotes because it was AP season. And, you know, I'll be honest, in, you know, I think it was 11th grade. I didn't really get that much out of it back then. Um, but then I reread this. I, I, I reread it. And, you know, I, I, I really do think that this is really like almost like it fits in perfectly with a course on heroes in literature. You know, Mr. Kirby, he loves focusing on that literature from the 60s. He loved the 50s, 60s, you know, the beatnecks and all that. Um, yeah, he was kind uh, of a beatnik himself, wasn't he? Yeah, kind of, I guess. Uh, I'll have to ask him next next time I see him. But uh, I mean, it it 
McMurphy, I, I just I loved the way he's portrayed as well. You know, I I completely agree that to me, Chief is really the focal point. Like having it told through the lens of someone who is kind of in this oppressed institution, who you know, you really start to realize the the nurse isn't there to help people get better. She's there to try to control them as pawns. Like I I, I really got the impression she's not there to try to make people sane again. She's trying to there to maintain order and. And that's why she hates McMurphy so much. But I want to read just a little um, passage of dialogue that like, uh, just because I really think Ken Kesey is so good at this that I, I just think it's worth uh, um, reading out loud. Because I, I, I found myself, I was on a, I was on a train um, and I started laughing out loud. Like everyone, it was actually pretty late at night and everyone started looking at me. And But I mean, I, I just couldn't help it. And here it goes. Um, so here, without further ado, I'll, I'll do my best at the voices. Um, I, I, I'm not going to try to mimic the movie because I don't really like, really like it that much, but uh, you can judge me after. Why does the dorms have to be locked on the weekends? Cheswick or somebody would ask. Can a fellow even have the weekends to himself? Yeah, Miss Ratshed, McMurphy would say. Why? If the dorms were left open, we have learned from past experience, you men would return to bed after breakfast. Is that a mortal sin? I mean, normal people get to sleep late on weekends. You men are in this hospital, she would say, like she was repeating it for the hundredth time, because of your proven inability to adjust to society. The doctor and I believe that every minute spent in the company of others, with some exceptions, is therapeutic, while every minute spent brooding alone only increases your separation. Is that the reason that there has to be at least eight guys together before they can be taken off the ward to OT or PT or one of them T's? That is correct. You mean it's sick to want to be off by yourself? I didn't say that. You mean if I go into the latrine to relieve myself, I should take along at least seven buddies to keep me from brooding on the can? <laughs> I just thought this yes. was... And the book is full of things like that. I mean, it just it's just fantastic dialogue. Uh, I love Dio, that. I feel like we're gonna leave we're gonna leave our poor listeners in the dust if we if we start talking all these characters without giving you know, us a little background. Uh, I don't know if we want to do a full synopsis. We need maybe, but at least we'll go through each character. All right. Yeah. Why don't Why don't we set the scene? I think that's right. Uh, do you want to kick it off, or you want me to kick it off? I think we can divide and conquer, given all the characters, but we can focus on the on the highlights. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there are tons for sure. But I think, as we've been talking before, I mean, there's the chief, uh, Chief Brondon, who you learn of as this very tall, heavy, silent, half-Native American man who's kind of overlooked by everybody else in the asylum. Um, He has a very sort of disconnected way of looking at the world. He seems to think that everybody has some sort of machinery inside of them that tells them what to do. And he believes that the nurse, who we'll talk about in a bit, Nurse Ratchet, um, has some way of controlling them and making them do what she wants them to do. So he's probably a little psychotic, right? Maybe schizophrenic. Uh, but he's a good man, definitely a good man, and has been stomped on by the world in a way that makes you feel very sympathetic towards him. He also feels like there's this, occasionally if he's feeling overwhelmed, he'll talk about this light fog misting over the ward. Um, And this is probably some sort of 
psychotic break, some hallucination, because nobody else reacts to it. We don't think it's real. Um, but that white fog is sort of just his way of withdrawing from the world. And you notice as the book goes on, and uh, he talks more with uh, McMurphy, and McMurphy changes the words, that the white fog starts to appear less and less. So, yeah, I think that's important to note, too, because by, by the time you get to like that last part of the story, he, he almost stops talking about machinery altogether. I mean, he gets electroshock therapy and he's good to go the next day. And, you know, it, but that I, I'm sure we'll get into that, you know, it, after For we sure. talk about McMurphy and the nurse. No, but let's pick it up. Just get through the characters and then we'll, we'll talk more in yeah. depth about what happens. So then you've got McMurphy, who is this con man, this rapscallion, a vagabond. He is, he's been imprisoned and had to work on a work farm and got terrible food and worked all day and didn't like his life. So he managed to convince a judge and jury that he was actually clinically insane in some way. I think a psychopath was the official designation. And they got sent to the asylum, committed there uh, involuntarily. But he, you know, he was cool with it and he got good meals and an interesting new place to hang out in. Um, and then he has, he never stops being a con man. Like he's always making money off of the people. Um, but as time goes on and he sees the way that the people need him, he kind of steps up to the plate and becomes in some way the sacrificial lamb upon which all of their hopes and dreams are, are placed. So there's McMurphy and we've got Nurse Ratchet. She's the nurse who basically runs the mental institution um, there are other people who theoretically have more power than her, but she exerts such, you know, a dominant personality on the ward that everybody else basically does as she says. So the doctor is kind of, you know, she cycled through some other doctors until, and sort of intimidated them into leaving until one shows up that she likes and can control, uh, the aides she selected. There's, uh, three young black men who serve as her closest aides. Um, and they have a very bitter relationship with each other, but they are joined together in their likewise bitter relationship with the rest of the institution and all the institution institutionalized men. Uh, so they kind of, uh, together, like install an aura of fear and loathing within all the kids, uh, who are, who are committed. So there's the nurse, uh, then there's a lot of other, uh, committed men. There's Harding, who's a college-educated man who's got some brooding secrets that come out later on. There is, gosh, who else is there, Dage? I mean, there's Cheswick, who um, ends up dying, but is kind of like always on McMurphy's side. There's um, Martini, who's this? Sorry? Billy Bibbit is his name? Yeah, Billy Bibbit, who's like this, one of, I think probably like the youngest uh, institutionalized person. Um, yeah, he's actually, he's in his thirties or something, but yeah. he, uh, he's like got a terrible stutter and he's got a very controlling mom and the nurse always, uh, always basically tortured him by saying, by, by taking all his deepest, darkest secrets and saying like, Oh my goodness, I think we have to tell your mother about this. So he's always really on the edge about this. Um, who else were you seeing the age? No, yeah, and then I guess, um, yeah, and then there's like, uh, there's a bunch of other minor characters. Like there's Martini, who's the guy who's always just seeing things, seeing people that aren't there. And then I guess there's the, um, yeah, 
I guess there's George, guess, who's like an OCD guy who yeah. used to be a ship's captain. It's from like some Scandinavian country, speaks with a funny accent. Um, but I think that's basically all the characters we need to to march along with the story. Would yeah, you say? I, would, I would agree. Um, I guess to set the stage, you know, as you were kind of talking about, um, you know, it, it, the, the whole book really revolves around the conflict between the nurse who's, you know, trying to keep everything in quote unquote order, I guess, or everything under her control. And then uh, Randall Patrick McMurphy, who's really just, you know, there, as, as Andres mentioned, they're kind of voluntarily at first, because, you know, he doesn't want to be on the work farm and figured he'd have a better time if people could, you know, give him where he, where he could get better food and just play poker all day and steal cigarettes from, uh, <laughs> you know, the other uh, committed patients. Um, but and, and the the whole novel really revolves around the conflict between the two, because um, McMurphy starts to point out to the other patients just how ridiculous a lot of the controlling measures she puts in place, just how belittling she the nurse is to these patients. And he starts to really um, poke the bear, so to speak. He starts to really, from from the day one he's there, like he wants nothing to do with these stupid rules, stupid regulations that he thinks that, that there's really no purpose behind, that really aren't designed to get patients to be better, but really just to let them all be in the fold of the nerves so she can control how things um, order and operate. And, and the whole novel revolves around that struggle through the lens, I guess, of uh, Chief Bromden as we... Uh, kind of mentioned earlier, who's, you know, kind of just observing the whole thing uh, until like, you know, towards the latter half of the book where he starts to speak and play more of an active role. Um, and as you can imagine, it, it just, it's just, it's pretty fantastic because, you know, um, I guess at an, at another, you know, surface level take, this really um, kind of, you know, and this is, this is more of a, I guess, superficial take but at face value this really shows you how for a long time even up as recently as the 1960s and 70s and you could argue in many parts of the world today how we treated those that were um you know that society deemed to be uh mentally challenged or mentally disabled right they 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 were kind of treated like you know like uh, so, some of the patients there, like he talks about the the acutes, the chronics, and then the vegetables, right? Some of them are clearly unable to to function in society. Like, there's no way they'll ever be able to go back because they're completely, you know, they're the the chronics and 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 the vegetables. Like, there's just no way they're going to be able to go back to society. But then a lot of the acutes, you see, like a lot of what's prevented them from even getting back to society is just how little they feel, how belittled they constantly are at the face of the nurse, right? And they and they start having this dependent relationship on the nurse that, you know, yeah. before McMurphy comes, like, they don't even feel safe speaking out during these meetings. She just runs their lives. Yeah, so this is, like, central who, of who the nurse is and what this institution is, is that she runs a very tight ship, but you get the impression by the end of the book that it's not at all for the best interests of the people who are committed there or who have voluntarily chosen to stay there, which as we learn later on is a good portion of the people. Um, It's really just because she loves having a sense of control and authority over these people. 
Um, so it's really kind of sick when you when you get to the end of it. Like I walked away having read this book, thinking like the craziest person in this book was definitely the nurse. Um, oh, I, I completely agree. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. It was just terrible, terrible. Um, I mean, she's she has all these men who have like really debilitating like anxieties or or illnesses of some kind, right? And she just pins them against each other and has them belittle themselves and each other. And there's a book that they have where they write down everything transgressive they would each say so they can pull it out in their group therapy sessions and and make them feel bad for it, right? So and, and she would reward stuff. them for turning against each other too. Because, uh, you know, if you were to write something about someone else, well, then she may let you sleep in 15 or 20 minutes. She is the crazy. I When I read that, I'm like, wow, she is deranged, you know? Oh, totally. <laughs> Totally. So into this mix, you throw in a man who's a con man, who's very proud of himself and does not like to be taken over. Uh, so he thinks pretty highly of himself and he comes up, butts heads with his nurse. He's like, he decides early on that I want to get one over this nurse. Like, I want to, I want to sort of make her look the fool and show how interesting and funny and cool I am. Uh, which is not like totally pure motives, but whatever, right? Uh, from the start, you root for him because the nurse is just such a nasty, nasty character. And that is uh, McMurphy that I'm talking about right there. So McMurphy, big brash guy, starts to insert a little bit of chaos into the ward. Um, and does so successfully for quite a while. They have some interactions with the nurse and... He's sort of winning, winning, winning. And he realizes the nurse like isn't really fighting back super vigorously, but still has a very self-satisfied look on her face. And he realizes that his exit from the ward is entirely dependent on when the nurse says that he is okay. And also realizes that he does not want to spend the rest of his life on this stupid ward and then starts to withdraw um, so up until this point, he's been a source of inspiration, of support for all the men on this ward who don't have a lot going for them. Um, but he gets the impression that they're just sort of using him to fight their fight their fights for for them, um, and does not like that impression, and has decided that it's not his best interest. So he's he's out of there. Did I miss any big parts, Gage? No, I I I think you hit the nail on the head. But obviously, that leads to kind of you know, right, right there is what leads to kind of like to the, the peak of the book, which it's funny because the peak of the book, you could argue happens in like the last 10 pages, but the buildup is, is just crazy. So, you know, he starts taking it easy. He starts realizing, wow, like I'm not going to get out of here um, until the nurse thinks he's okay. And she's not going to give her stamp of approval. Um, not she doesn't care about whether he's quote unquote better because she knows he's not really insane to begin with. So she, she's trying to use him as an example essentially like and she knows she's playing the long game she knows she has all the power and that he can keep this up forever and then he'll he'll be there forever and you know after this sort of lull that he takes you know this uh break he takes from you know pushing the nurse's buttons um eventually he just he snaps you know cheswick i think it's when cheswick starts complaining about you know um who's the only one i guess besides mcmurphy who has the guts to once in a while speak up in these group therapy sessions, like and and state what he wants, like so it got to the point where McMurphy was 
gambling with the patients and he was he was winning all their cigarettes right because he's professional con man so he, he he knows how to play cards very well um and it, the patients didn't even ask for it but she decided that from there from from that point on all cigarettes were going to be kept in the nurse's station and distributed um by her she was going to have control about uh, over the patient cigarettes that they owned keep in mind this was in the 19 19- early 1960s. I don't know if they knew smoking was bad for your body, but it was a lot more common then than it is now. Um, and he's like, well, I want my cigarettes back. I want my cigarettes back. And, uh, you know, at first McMurphy's kind of like, ah, shut up. No one cares about your, your cigarettes. But eventually, you know, after this, I don't know how long the period was of him kind of being silent. He just, he takes his hand and punches through the glass in the nurse's station. And, uh, you know, it's like, here, take your cigarettes, you know, and that kind of starts the new yeah. rise of McMurphy. No, but you're missing an important point there, which is he does this for a while because he has this sense that the other guys are sort of pulling, pulling a big one on him by making him fight, right? Because his impression is that they're all there involuntarily, involuntarily, mm-hmm. I don't know, um, that they're all there against their will and that they're trying to get out as fast as possible. And he thinks, dang, they're making me fight back on the nurse so they can win these petty favors and nice privileges. And really, that just means I'm going to stay here longer and they're going to get out super quick. And then one day he has this conversation. I forget exactly how it comes up, but he realizes that most of the men there are there just because they they signed up voluntarily. Yeah, they're, they're voluntarily there. Yeah, like the world, the outside world is too scary for them for whatever reason. Like, I don't know, maybe they're, like, I don't know, there's one guy who turns out to be a repressed uh, homosexual. And he just gets a lot of shame from society. And he has a wife, but the wife is not, like, it's not a great situation with her. and He doesn't feel super comfortable. So he's in the institution just to sort of sweat it out for a while. There's another guy who's a germaphobe. He's got he's got OCD, so he's stuck there too. There's a guy and there's, who there's Billy Bibbit who may be yeah. a, a voluntary commit, but is really there because people are taking it because his mom's good friends with Nurse Ratchet and yeah, and his mom like oh my gosh, like psychological torture on this poor guy that he just yeah. like his mom is just super controlling and overbearing, um, and I just feel real bad for him. So McMurphy realizes all these people are here because they want to be because the outside world is too scary for scary for them. So the interesting thought here is that McMurphy was offended and withdrawn from the the battle with Nurse Ratchet because he thought that the men were using him. Um, And then he learns that, in fact, the men were still kind of using him, but they weren't using him so that they could get privileges and then get out of there as fast as possible. They were using him because these are the the downtrodden of society who just don't know how to stand up for themselves and don't have the power of will. And they needed somebody to step up and be the leader for them. Um, Exactly. he's like, yeah. No, I mean, I was going to say, I think exactly the point. I I wouldn't even call it using him as much as um, almost needed him. him. Yeah, but in in a different way. but yeah. it's like a good kind of using, right? It's like, oh, right. They, they were using me, but like, it, because they just they needed the strength me. to yeah. do what needed to be done. So it's in this context that, you know, Cheswick's arguing and like, like Jago was saying, he stood up and he walked over to the booth with the glass 
And it's a, it's a pretty electric moment in the book, I'll say, because there was this brief burst of activity when McMurphy first showed up, and then there was a long sort of lull. You get the sense that everything's going to slowly peter out, and the nurse will retain control. And then in this big, dramatic fashion, McMurphy reestablishes that war has continued. That he breaks open the window with his bare hands. He's like, oh my, I, I didn't even realize that the glass was there. So that's it's pretty good. I'm a fan. Yeah, I, I completely agree, and it, it, that's and that's kind of when this sort of the final stage, the final like that. This was kind of like a lull in the war, and this is when really the second part of the the war really picks up, and, and when McMurphy really just refuses to back down now. Um, no, I should, maybe that's a bad way of putting it, but really just realizes what he means to these patients, realizing, um, you know the importance he plays in these patients' lives and like how these people really aren't, a lot of these people don't necessarily need to be in an insane asylum, but have just, like you mentioned, have been told by so many, been put down so often and belittled that, and now depend on the nurse so much that in their eyes, they feel like they need to be there. They, they couldn't imagine themselves back in normal society. And uh, it's interesting because then things really start to escalate and the nurse, you know, tries doing some, I think it's after this where he, he gets, he convinces the nurse to allow them to go on a fishing trip um, with what McMurphy said would be two of his uh, aunts, two of his aunts who, uh, <laughs> who owned, um, you know, a, a fishing boat who had been married to sailors and, and, and he was going to take them out to show, to show them how to like deep fish. Yeah. These aunts, not, these aunts yeah. turn out to be prostitutes, right? I mean, yeah. One doesn't show up because she recently got married, but the other is this incredibly beautiful young woman who's also a prostitute. Um, and uh, McMurphy manages to get all the men to pay $10 so they can go on this trip. And he convinces the doctor even, who, again, theoretically has, uh, what's the word? Um, authority. More, yeah, exactly. Yeah, over the nurse. He convinces them that this would be a very healthy thing, but the doctor ends up coming along on this fishing trip with a bunch of insane people. And it's worth noting that initially when just the uh, one quote unquote aunt showed up, uh, nurse Ratchet was like, all right, this isn't going to happen. We needed two cars. There's only one car. This isn't going to happen. And then, you know, McMurphy knowing that, you know, the, the doctor's quite a fisherman himself uh, says uh, it manages to convince the doctor and the doctor himself kind of has this moment of, uh, kind of like the patients who, who need that moment of being able to stick up to the nurse kind of uh, sticks up to the nurse and says, you know, what? yep, I'll go. And he, he kind of like just picks up his stuff. He's like, yeah, I can do this paperwork from the boat. And they head out. It was, it was a pretty funny scene. I thought just how it was, kind it was of, hilarious. Right. Yeah. I forget the specific context, but there was, there was some gag about how he convinced the doctor that this was a good idea. Um, I think it was because the, the, his friend, the prostitute came along and was wearing a low-cut blouse, and the doctor was pretty captivated by what he saw uh, and decided yeah. that this was a healthy outing and worth going on, going to. And, and interestingly enough, um, I don't know, just this one trip, this one escape, ends up being, you know, for the vast majority, of, like for the people who go, right, for the patients, it ends up being an incredibly uh, fruitful experience for them like to experience life outside the walls of the hospital. Yeah, it's just for something sure. it, it ends up having 
tons of impact on them and they all come back with fish. They all catch, you know, fish in the ocean. Um, you know, I, I forget, uh, the, what the guy with OCD, you know, he used to be a captain. He's able to captain the boat. Um, and it, and it ends up, you know, this is an, an act of reliance, or I guess an act of, um, resistance against the nurse, because what we didn't mention before is leading up to this trip, knowing v- very well that the patients suffer from anxiety and, you know, are, tend to be, you know, more on the timid side. She started posting articles every day of how rough the seas had been, how bad the weather was going to be, how bad the fishing season had been, um, you know, really trying to dissuade the patients from going. So, and despite her best efforts, you know, McMurphy was able to prevail here and provide, you know, something arguably more therapeutic than the mental institution. Well, not even arguably, something more therapeutic than anything the institution here could offer you know she's they're still doing lobotomies here and electroshock therapy uh which we'll get into right after this but um mm-hmm. it's it, it just goes to show that these people are really being held back by the nurse who's not out there for their best interest she's really out there for hers right she yeah, she's she gets this identification yeah parasitizing i mean it's again i i i feel like i'm i'm belaboring the same point a lot but it's really just it, it's messed up but I mean, these men, they find the, the ship, the fishing trip was just meant to be fun and a way for McMurphy to skim off a few extra bucks and to see an old friend of his who he was very fond of, shall we say. Um, <laughs> but it ends up being actually a pivotal moment for these men because they stop at a gas station and the doctor, who's a very timid man, and all the, all the, uh, uh, all the committed men as well are in the car and the, the uh, the gas station attendants walk up and they realize that these men are men to be stomped on. And they start to like suggest ways in which they can make a few bucks. Like, oh, I guess you'll be wanting the extra premium, right? And, oh, we can fit you out with some uh, new hubcaps or I don't know, and they just pick some random stuff just because they know that these men will agree to it and they can move on. And McMurphy comes back and is like, no, no, no. Let me let me tell you, these men are insane, clinically dangerous, and we're you know we're gonna take them off. Uh, what is it? Uh, like you don't you don't want to cross them because that man over there tore one man in half. He says some ridiculous story, and the gas station attendants are pretty scared by that. And the men realize, oh, like you know, like a we can stand up for ourselves in some level, but also our position as insane men is not just necessarily a negative all the time it can be a position of power because people people fear us for wearing this green uniform people uh don't see us as predictable and we can kind of use that to our advantage sometimes um unpredictable the same way that mcmurphy is exactly and that was actually something that was you know very significant you know by the time they're getting to the dock you know they're they're out there yelling at people you know telling people to get out of the way they they feel a level of confidence they haven't felt in years uh, and that's that you can definitely see that from the chief's standpoint too you know he has a few beers he just feels so confident and uh it it, it is another thing ken kesey just does so well because i i could really like i could picture myself right there um and it, it, he just does such a fantastic job of showing this. Yeah, so they have a wonderful fishing trip. They come back in very high spirits. The men showing uh, a level of engagedness and happiness that they haven't had in years, many years. And then we sort of enter the last phase 
of, of the story. Um, so a very interesting thing happens. Um, yeah, the, the nurse decides they're infected or that they need to take precautionary measures. Yeah, I guess this isn't truly the last phase. I mean, the last phase will come in a bit, but second to last, we'll say. But the nurse decides that these men are infected, which is, again, just a way of exerting control or retribution on how they cost her. And then one of the men who's, again, a huge germaphobe, this is George, who captained the ship when they were when they were gone. Uh, everyone's being scrubbed down, and most of them can take it in stride, you know. They're like farting in the attendant's face as he like walks past <laughs> to the to clean them. You know, sort of bathroom humor like that. Uh, they're making jokes, they're they're it's like it's embarrassing, but it's whatever to them. But then they reach George, who really hates being touched and being exposed to germs of any kind. And the attendant reaches him and decides he's going to clean him. And this is to George really intolerable. Like George cannot handle being touched in this way and being scrubbed down with a brush that he doesn't know or understand. So he begs no, he begs no, he begs no, and the attendant eventually just starts scrubbing him down. And George is sitting there weeping, he just can't handle it. And McMurphy, who was standing on the side saying, come on, man, don't do this. Like, you can't do this, man. It's just not going to happen. And then finally, once the black man starts scrubbing George down, he fights him. They get into a big old fist fight, old fashioned, uh, which is something McMurphy probably felt he had to do. But in the grand, grand scheme of the war between him and the nurse, it is a fatal mistake because if you're in the asylum, uh, at least the one that Ken, Ken Kesey Ken Kesey paints in this story, uh, so long as you are like peaceable, they can't do too much to you. But if you ever become violent, that's when they can pull out the big guns, and the big guns are not good in the slightest. I mean, this is the 1960s or 1950s in the mental hospital. If they decide that you're violent, they will pour like volts through your brain to try to subdue you or they will give you a lobotomy they will straight up cut your frontotemporal lobe or junction i don't know something but some some junction between the two frontal frontal lobes i think it is and that i mean i'm sure you all know what a lobotomy is um but it completely obliterates your personality personality it basically turns you to a child again no impulse control no sense of agency. You sit there and you do what you're told all day. Yeah, and I, I think this is this is a very significant uh, part in the book. I really I really thought this is where McMurphy becomes a hero, um, because right before this, the nurse, you know, post fishing trip, but before this, the nurse had kind of been forcing his hand a little. She started. She decided that she was going to post a history of the financial, you know, I guess the financial statements of each. And how, you know, their balances of cash had all been going down while McMurphy's had been skyrocketing. And this started causing some, you know, internal, this started causing some uh, hesitation amongst the patients about, you know, McMurphy it started sowing some doubt. And uh, this is right about the moment when, you know, Chief starts to speak for the first time. And, yeah, um, and it, you have to say that. McMurphy yeah. is a con man. He never ceases to be a con man throughout this story. Like, if there is a buck to be made, he will make it. 
And when all these men want to play poker, McMurphy, who knows how to play poker very well, will happily remove these men of their money. You know? Exactly. So they start like viewing McMurphy in a different light. They start, they're not as social with him. They start ignoring him a little more. They stop laughing at his jokes as much. And, you know, make a long story short, you know, McMurphy, well, we've made it a long story pretty long, but, you know, to make this part pretty short. <laughs> oh, um, yeah, it's pretty long. Uh, Mc, McMurphy, you know, talks to Chief and he's like, what's going on? And the chief basically, you know, to paraphrase, is like, you're always winning. You're always like, uh, I guess, taking advantage of us. And this is right before the scene when he's, you know, when this happens, when they start cleaning all the patients. And he essentially uh, commits an act of sacrifice. He's almost almost an act of martyrdom, you could say, uh, although he doesn't die quite yet. Um, you know, in that he knows there is nothing to gain by punching um, by getting into a fight with the aide, there's absolutely, there's, there's no way that ends well for him, but, you know, right after the chief tells him this, this is happening. And he says, you know what, I'm going to stick up for, uh, for Charlie. That, that, that's like, I keep on forgetting his name. Um, George, the captain, George, is the George, yeah, George, the germ, George, the germaphobe who, um, who really, really hates this. And look, no one expects him to do anything, but he keeps on saying, stop, just don't do it. Why are you doing this to him? And eventually he he knows this is going to land him in a boatload of trouble, but he gets up and he punches the aide and he gets in a huge fist fight. Um, you know, at the very end, Chief Bromden steps in, grabs the other aide, kind of shoves him into the shower and they, and they get in a fight there. He breaks there, his and, arm. He yeah, breaks his arm. He breaks his arm. He's a big, big guy. So Again, Chief Bromden, big dude. You know, yeah. when he wants to hurt somebody, it's very easy for him to hurt somebody. And he did this out of this. This was like when he when I really started to click into me. All right, this is why Mr. Kirby had us read this for hero. Like this is now a guy who's who's putting himself out there. All right, he's a con man, but he's starting to really um, be a hero for these patients and starting to act like one too. Yeah. To the point where they get they, him and the chief get sent up to electroshock therapy. The chief has a pretty good go at it, right? You know, they shock him I think once or twice or whatever, and the next day he's fine. Which, by the way, before. He talks about how that would have been impossible. You know, it would have taken him like two to four weeks to get out of this. But one day he's fine. He wakes up, he's back on the ward. And I think that has a lot to do with McMurphy and how he's kind of just changed the whole environment of the institution. And then McMurphy awakes from his like from his uh from his shock therapy and again cracking jokes. And he's like, Oh, they're just recharging my battery for free. And he's and he keeps on egging it on. And the nurse is content keeping him there as long as possible until she realizes that Chief Bromley comes down and word starts to get out that he's, he starts becoming some sort of legend, some sort of myth. Like, oh, yeah, like I heard he was uh, he was, you know, pinching the nurse's butt or whatever, you know, like just still cracking jokes. He's starting to become this hero. And uh, eventually the, the nurse is just forced to bring him back down because she sees that he's worth a lot more he does a lot more damage when he's gone and he's seen as this hailed as this hero as opposed to when he's among them. So Yeah, I think that brings up an important point is like why doesn't the nurse just kick him out of this ward when he's obviously such a force for, for chaos? Um and the truth is if she kicked him out of the ward, his legend would live on for years. She would have men like she would be struggling to control them for the rest of her tenure as head nurse. Because these men look up to him so much. And if they saw that his rebellion was successful and she had to give up and send him away, 
they would see it as a big win and they themselves wouldn't spend the rest of their, their time sort of heckling her. So she's decided that she, she can't just kick him out. She has to beat him down. She has to break his spirit. Mm-hmm. And it just doesn't work. You know, electroshock, not successful. Even Chief Brunton, like Diego said, who has his own sordid past with, with electroshock therapy, is has the spirit and fire to step right back up and face each new day with, with a pretty good spirit. Yeah, and I guess this leads into the last part of the book, the real, the true last part, guys. Don't worry. True last part. Well, I know part. you've been, you've been hanging in with us. McMurphy decides to host an absolute rager. He invites his uh, two prostitute friends over. He bribes one of the uh, night aides. And, and they just have a Billy, rager. Billy Bibbett, who we mentioned before, his guy with the stutter, had taken quite a liking to his friend when they went on the fishing trip. Nothing had happened, but, you know, they he had gotten real sweet on her. So McMurphy decides to act the pimp and manages to procure her again. She He convinces her to come along, and Billy pays her... Well, pays her ten dollars and McMurphy ten dollars for for uh, for uh, facilitating, shall we say? Um, and she brings her friend and brings a ton of liquor, um, and they host, as Diego said, a rager. Yeah, and they bring out the cough syrup, they bring out the pills, they bring out. <laughs> yeah, it they just make, escalates. Like they, they make stop. the ward a complete mess. Break the window and take like yeah. gallons of cough syrup, like. Oh my goodness, like these men are now high on codeine and alcohol at the same time. Um, and the, one of the old security guards gets in on it. He's like, oh, you know, as long as you give me some of your alcohol, I'm down to make this happen. And McMurphy and the security, security guards start smoking some pot. Um, and uh, everyone gets very drunk. Billy and the girl go somewhere else. Um and they know it's going too far, but at this point they've decided it's too late to stop it. And they make this elaborate plan to escape through the window before the before everybody wakes up in the morning. And then McMurphy just falls asleep. And yeah. just you know. And so um, that's where they find him in the morning with his arm around the prostitute in the ward where he's supposed to be a committed mental uh, patient. And, you know, basically the aides come in, Nurse Ratchet comes in, and um, everyone's just extremely hungover, I guess you could put it. You know, they, uh, whatever the effects of having codeine and alcohol are, you know, after a night of doing that, they're whatever. I've never done it, but out. it's probably not very fun. Yeah. And uh, so basically, you know, to kind of close out the book, you know, uh, the nurse starts lecturing everyone, and there's just this big disaster that happens. Um, you know, she starts rounding up all the patients and they realize Billy Bibbit isn't there and, uh, they start searching all the rooms and eventually, um, they find Billy Bibbit, um, in lying down with, uh, one of the prostitutes. Yeah. And, as McMurphy puts it, losing, having lost his cherry, you know? Yeah. Um, and, uh, instead of the nurse, you know, the nurse, this just further proves the point of how much of a terrible person she is. She's like, your mother is going to be so disappointed. How dare yeah. you? You know, so she, she she needs control, and yeah. I think having seen the entire war de, war devolve overnight, she's probably pretty desperate to win it back. So she turns to one of her old faithfuls, which is she can always make Billy feel terrible about himself and threaten to tell his mom about his deepest darkest secrets, and that always sure as rain will make Billy 
squeal and tremble and come under her thumb again. So she turns to it. She says, Billy, I cannot believe you would do this. What would your mother say? And Billy's like, oh, please don't tell her. And she's like, no, no, it's for your own good. I'm sorry, that's how it goes. And he's so ruined by this. He's that he commits suicide. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. And they take him to the doctor's office. They leave him alone for a while. And once the doctor comes in the morning, the nurse says, you should check up on poor Billy Bibbit, such a terrible young man. Doctor comes in and Billy has cut himself and bled to death. And the, the worst thing about it is the nurse is almost, you could, I could almost see the smirk on her face when she goes up to McMurphy. She's like, look what you did. You know, I, I, this is going to sound messed up, but this is the exact way I, I pictured. Like, um, you know, I pictured, have you seen the movie, the, A Christmas Story? Of course you have. Um, yeah. You know, when the teacher, uh, one of the students gets his tongue stuck on a flagpole and then the fire department has to come back and then he comes back into class with a bandage and the teacher comes to the to, to all the students. In this case, they're kind of guilty. Uh, but, you know, she's like, look what you did. I hope you feel ashamed of yourself for yourself. Well, here, the, the nurse is almost happy like that, that Billy Bibbit killed himself. She's yeah, almost like, sick. she's like, oh, this Absolutely is great. Sick. How do you feel, McMurphy? First Cheswick, who had died due to an accident in, in the pool. You know, he got his fingers stuck in the drain. And and now, now Billy Bibbit, look what you did. And he's just hungover. He doesn't know what to do, how to react. And he just can't take it anymore. So he goes up to the nurse and he starts strangling her. Um, Which I, I do not approve of violence, right? But the it's it's a like wildly uh, climactic moment of the book is that he is just at wit's end and he knows what he's doing. He knows that it it won't succeed. He's not going to kill the nurse, and he knows that this is the end. But he steps up and he strangles her. He just puts his arms around her neck and squeezes. Um, and immediately the word comes to life, and all these men come around and stop him, hold him down, and beat him down, and subdue him. Um, but that was just where he was, is that he couldn't take it. one more bit of this nurse trying to obliterate him and all the other men of the ward. And, and that's the irony of the whole situation. She took someone who's probably the least insane person there and just she made him insane, right? She, she, mm-hmm. she, she was the one who, who made him do like an insane act. And ultimately, he gets shipped away and... Uh, you know, he's, he's given a lobotomy yeah. and uh, she gives a lobotomy to a totally sane person. Um, who, it should be said just though, to prove that a she point. is, she herself is very shaken by what has occurred. That she was physically threatened like that is something that's never happened before in her ward. Um, and she's kind of beating in some sense. She loses control. Yeah. She loses control. She loses her sense of poise, her sense of authority. Uh, and she knows she's not going to win him back in front of these men. And the right? voluntary people who are there, the voluntary patients who are there, one by one decide to start leaving, um, mm-hmm. which is something pretty cool. It's something you don't see in the movie at all. Uh, but, um, you know, the, the, he really was a hero. McMurphy was a hero to these people. One by one, Harding leaves. Um, yeah, there's so many characters here. But, you know, two of the guys with epilepsy decide to leave. Um, and I, I want to talk more uh, sorry to interrupt you. I want to talk yeah. more about the hero thing, but first let's just round up the rest of the story super quick. Yeah. Is that at some point uh, McMurphy comes back from his lobotomy 
and he is, as all lobotomized patients are, a shell of his former self. His big old bruises by his eyes, and the men who walk past see his puffy face, completely expressionless, and they're like, it's a fake. It's a doll. It's a bad one, too. It, just, it looks nothing like him. This is not McMurphy. Um, but Chief Bromden knows. It's like, well, that's what they did to him. It's terrible. So in the dead of night, Bromden decides to take action because he decides that this is what McMurphy would have wanted. And he gets up, he grabs a pillow, and he smothers McMurphy. He kills him. And there's other men in the ward who, like, see him do it, and they say, no, it's what McMurphy would have wanted. And they say, get out of here, run away, we'll cover for you. Um, so Chief Bromding grabs this big old console inside the bathroom or something, like a big old piece of machinery, yeah, lifts it off the ground, haves it through the window, and escapes, and rides off into the moonlight. With plans to go back to his homeland and to spear fat, spear spearfish along the along the waterfalls of the uh, of oh, the yeah. Columbia River, yeah. just like he used to with his dad. And he's a changed man, totally changed. Yeah, it was it was it was a beautiful. I mean, it, it's it's a complex ending, right? Because it's gruesome. I will say it's gruesome, right? I mean, you yeah, can't look yeah. at like the, the the lobotomy ending and all these things going on yeah. and be like, oh, amazing, fantastic. It's not like you know Lord of the Rings when they you know kill all the orcs. It's just it's it's just like really upsetting on some level, fantastic. Um, <laughs> right? But it still is cathartic in some way and inspiring in some way to see how he changed the lives of all these men for the better. Um, and it's a funny thing to think, oh, he would prefer to have died. Um, but I, I don't think it's moral, but if you think of it in terms of the dynamics between him and the nurse, it was necessary. Because if he was stuck around as a monument to what happens if you cross the nurse, then the nurse, the nurse wins. If, on the other hand, his martyrdom is finished and he dies, then his legend lives on forever. You know, obviously, uh, that's exactly what happens. You know, he, he, he's smothered and, and, the, and the chief escapes. But, um, you know, and, and before that, while McMurphy's up in the board getting his lobotomy for three weeks, you know, all these people are inspired to just leave. You know, all these voluntary commits who had, you know, convinced themselves they couldn't live in society are ultimately, you know, take the step to go back to living in society. And uh, that's obviously, uh, you know, the, the, the chair on top is Chief Bromden, who actually is a committed patient, you know, not there voluntarily, decided to escape and decided to take control of his own life. And all this was brought about through, through McMurphy. So let's talk about McMurphy. Is he a hero? Oh, I mean, you know what I think about this, absolutely. But it's, I mean, like, what story can we compare him to? Like, is he a Christ figure? No, because he's kind of a very poorly behaved Christ figure. Well, no, uh, he is, he is a little bit of a Christ figure. I mean, like he dies to save the community. So, I mean, that's, that's, I mean, there's that, right? Yeah, I guess he's not resurrected, so he couldn't be a complete Christ figure. That's true. It's not. It's not quite on on the nose as Harry Potter was, um, and there's there's something amazing about the scene where Chief Bromden, after um, after, uh, you know, 
you know, when he at the very end of the story, when he rips the console out and just throws it through through the window. I mean, that's 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 incredible. Mm-hmm. You can read into the console too. Is that this machinery which Chief Bromden thought was controlling him and everybody around him? He like uproots it and uses it to to as his means of escape. Um, yeah, that's kind of a side note. And it's also like it's interesting because it's ultimately McMurphy who quote unquote makes him big again. You know, gives him the courage to think that he can lift it because he had kind of you know as we've talked about before, you know, kind of uh, convinced himself that he was a shell of his former self. You know, he used to play football in high school. He was in the army. You know, he's a, he's a six foot five guy, but he convinced himself that he wasn't big. And then McMurphy's like, I bet I can make you big again. And it, ultimately he does, you know, and then that's, that's what allows him to, uh, to escape and lift that control panel. But I'm just interested. Maybe, maybe we should wrap it up. I'm, I'm, I'm curious, uh, what what your guys' final thoughts on this book, on this novel are? You know, I, you know, Andresen, we've we've talked about it for a while, but you know, I really, really thought it was a fantastic book. It was just a fantastic read. Um, I'm really glad I, quote unquote, reread it after not having really read it before. Um, and I highly, highly recommend our listeners to give it a listen because it is it is just a fantastic. Fantastic novel, and I think Ken Kesey does does a wonderful job. What What about you guys? Uh, I second that. I enjoyed it. Uh, I will say Diego sort of sprung this as a surprise episode. He like told us what like five days ago that he had read the book and would like to record, or maybe a week ago. And I kind of speed read the book to catch up. Um, but I I usually can't do that with much success but when the book is as well written and as engaging as this one was it's actually not hard at all um, and it's a very easy way to procrastinate studying for exams so oh, uh, no. has that was that oh no I'm, I'm glad i was able to help you in that cause Andres. i'm glad I, i'm glad I, I i apologize for for causing procrastination but i'm glad you were able to speed read through it no, no, I, I have no complaints about having the distraction from studying every now and then. Um, but great book, worth the read. And I think it's a, like it holds an important place in American literature. Would you guys agree? Oh, absolutely. And I think, you know, um, for a variety of reasons we just talked about, but more than anything, just, I mean, there's this, I guess constant battle between the McMurphy and, and the nurse, but it, it really does give a light to how, uh, you know, I, I, I mentioned this before, but just how, you know, society has treated those who are different. You know, I don't even want to say mentally, you know, handicapped because a lot of these people were just there as a result of being belittled because they were just different. Um, you know, I think most people would agree Harding didn't particularly need to be there right um yeah i mean i'm gonna push back on you there diego because like it the point isn't that these men were insane and needed to be treated better it was that they weren't really insane at all they just like had sort of subdued personalities well well not because some some of them were um you know some were clearly needed to be there right you had yeah some were but they they didn't feature in the book right i mean there were men who were just totally like incompetent right but they weren't the main characters. The main characters were what? They were uh, like uh, a repressed gay man. They were uh, Chief Chief Brunden, who's suffered like like terrible trauma from the fact that his entire way of living was 
stolen away from him by unscrupulous government officials. Um, and he saw his dad's life completely ruined by this, by this, by his mom, right? By his mom. Like, oh my gosh. Well, anyway, I, I don't think we should get too far off the point, but, um, you know, I, I was just asking for closing thoughts. I don't know. I, I think it's, it's, it is definitely an important read. I think it's, uh, it's a fantastic read. There's a, there's a reason it's a classic. And, uh, I hope that everyone who listens to this podcast will, will give it a read. Thank you everyone for listening. And we hope you will uh, continue to tune in and, and read this book. And we hope you enjoyed this episode as much as we did. Thanks.